Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Union Chapel Church this morning. We're only in North Carolina. Can you have four seasons in one week? So, so, well, we brave whatever the elements are outside to be in the Lord's house. If you're not able to be here this morning, thank you for watching on, on our live stream today. As we begin our service this morning, let's stand and we'll sing the doxology through two times. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Good morning. My name is Josh Ingen. I serve as the pastor here at Union Chapels. Good to see everybody today. We have a lot of things going on. Uh, today we have a business meeting, real short, to uh, vote on a, a budget line item for homecoming. And so our homecoming service is going to be in October, October 15th, which is a Sunday. And we're going to start at 10.30. So it's going to be a little bit earlier. So be here a little bit before 10.30 to get a seat. Hopefully it's going to be packed out. We're going to have uh, Dr. Matt Queen speaking that Sunday, so mark that on your calendars, and we're getting that budget line item so we can be sending out some invitations and getting things prepped out for that, because October, as you know, will be here before you know it. Um, then next week, we're going to have another special business meeting just to vote on uh, getting together for a pianist search committee. And then next Sunday, we're going to have a Lord's Supper meal after the service. So we're going to have a time of fellowship and time uh, to eat together in the fellowship hall after the, the service next Sunday. So plan to be here for that. Um, and then also, uh, mark your calendars for the summertime coming up uh, July 20th through the 22nd. It's a Thursday, Friday, and Saturday uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. is our Vacation Bible School. So uh, sign up. Uh, volunteer forms are in the foyer for that. And you can also see in your bulletin just the, our mission to make disciples and things we've been doing this week. Uh, we've, this past week, we had a group actually go to Camp Truett Conference Center in Hayesville, and they had a good trip serving there, serving meals there for a marriage retreat. So thank you for you guys serving in that way, and thank you, thankful that you came back to us. Safe travels. Um, and thank you for your prayers as we go out on Saturdays and share the gospel uh, with people, uh, be sharing the gospel each and every day with people who you come in contact with. Uh, definitely look out for next evangelism training, and we'll be uh, learning more how to be better share the gospel with our friends and family. And so today, I'm going to do a responsive reading. So I'll be doing the worship leader part, and this it will be on the screens, um, but it'll also be um, from hymn number seven. It's on number seven in your hymn books. This is Praise the Almighty King. So I'll do the worship leader part, and then you do uh, everyone else's response. So, this, again, this is in number seven in the hymn, hymn book, if you would like to follow along there or on the screens. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, and the glory and the majesty and the splendor, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Praise your glorious name. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. We give thanks and praise your glorious name. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now our God. We give you thanks and praise your glorious name. 
Let us pray. God, you are glorious and you are magnificent. You are wonderful. You are holy. You are creator. God, and we worship you. And God, as I think about how the, across our nation and across the world, about how many people on this day are gathering to worship your name, it is exciting to see uh, people come to faith and to see signs of revival across the country and that we pray that today that you would continue to move in the hearts and lives uh, in our, at Union Chapel and beyond to our community that we could be a light to the dark world. God, we thank you for this church that we get to come together and, and encourage one another through song, that we get to encourage one another and point each other to Jesus through the reading of your word and through our prayers. God, we love you and thank you. We ask that you bless this, this worship service that would be pleasing to you, that we would cast aside all sin, that we would uh, recognize any darkness in our heart and repent of that and come to you for forgiveness. God, we thank you for being so gracious to us to allow us to come into your presence, that you've made a way, you've, you've made a way of forgiveness. You've made us holy in Christ. God, that is our only hope in life and in death, that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. God, we praise you for that. We love you and thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue with our time of hymn singing this morning, if you're using the handle, please turn to page 691. Stand if you're able, and we'll sing Surely Goodness and Mercy. Page 526, and we'll sing the solid rock.
be seated again. Good morning. My name is Ricky Brantley. I serve as a deacon here, and at this time, we're going to pray for the lost, uh, evangelism, and missionaries throughout the world. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord Jesus, we praise you and exalt your name. There is no other God but the Lord God Almighty. And God, we as your people, we come before your throne of grace. And God, we, we need you. This community needs you. God, we know many in our families and friends and business acquaintances, God, that are lost and they've heard the gospel, they've received tracts. Some have attended worship services. God, we pray for a movement of your spirit within their hearts. God, apart from that, their eyes will not be opened, their ears will not be opened, their hearts will not be opened. We pray for the powerful, regenerating work of your Holy Spirit. Father, for my family members, for Bernice's family members, for each member here, their family members, our community, God. We pray for hearts to be, hearts of stone to be removed and hearts of flesh to be in place. God, that people would truly see and understand that Jesus Christ is the only way. God, we pray for the convicting work of your Holy Spirit, that people, God, could understand their desperate need to repent of their sin. No matter how good they think they are, it's not good enough. Jesus is the only way. And Lord God, you sent him here on a mission to seek and to save that which was lost as a ransom for many as he was lifted up. God, we pray for your work in the hearts of all those who are lost in our families and our community. God, that you would bring glory to yourself doing a mighty work that you would raise the dead. God, and it's only, it's the only, you're the only one that can do that. God, we pray for the missionaries throughout the world. God, who are striving to serve you, to proclaim the gospel, to live out the gospel, to so many different cultures in so many different countries that you would empower them and strengthen them by the power of your spirit, that you would use them in a mighty way to draw those of different cultures to yourself, that you would bring glory to yourself as only you can do. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. As we enter into our time of praise and worship this morning, we'll sing Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone, and also Mighty to Save. So please stand one more time if you're able. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Was grace.
Give me my hand this morning. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Our God and King has conquered the grave. Praise God. Um, I was asked to pray for a revival this morning. How many know there's a revival going on at Asbury in Kentucky? Praise the Lord. We need to be praying for those young people. We have a privilege and a responsibility to pray for those fires of revival to come up, not just in Asbury, not just in the people that go to Asbury and go back to the churches, but we need to pray that God shine his light in the hearts of people that have long since been apathetic and indifferent. We need God to move because it is our apathy and our indifference as Christians as a whole, those that name the name of Christ, whether they're real or not. It's been our indifference that has allowed the sins to happen. It's been our indifference to God. We need to pray for that. Ezra said, or the Bible says in Ezra 9, 15, he said, O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. Let's pray. You are holy, O God, totally righteous, and alas, we're not. 
We stand before you like ancient Israel did before their holy God who is totally righteous in sin, indifference, in trespasses, in things we know that were wrong and we have done. Lord, yet we have escaped as it is this day. You have had mercy. You have had grace. You've forgiven our sins and you will forgive our sins. You call us to repentance. Lord, let that light of revival, let that light of the Holy Spirit shine in our hearts. Show us where we trespass. Show us where we need to change. Show us, Lord, because if you do not show us, we will not see. We'll be blind. Lord, open our eyes. Lord, open our eyes to our indifference. Open our eyes to our sin. Lord, so that we can escape. We are yet remained escaped, and repentance is the only way of escape. Lord, we praise you that you're the God of heaven and earth, that you're the God that sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins and to rise again. Lord, let your Holy Spirit make that resurrection real in our heart. And help us, Lord, to be revived. Help us, Lord, to truly be as Jesus said. Jesus prayed. He said, Lord, make them one with me as I am one with the Father. Lord, we pray that we would be one with you and that you would strip away all those things that would hinder that. That your Holy Spirit would do that mighty work in each and every heart. Minister to each one of us now as we think about you and your glory and your blessings and your mercy. Lord, glorify your name in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, send us revival. Let it sweep our nation. Amen. Uh, Genesis chapter 4 today, Genesis chapter 4, picking up in verse 8. Last week, we left off on a cliffhanger of the story of Cain and Abel. If you don't know the ending of Cain and Abel... You're about to be shocked. <laughs> so this week we're picking up in verse 8 and we're looking at the effects of the fall, effects of sin in the world. You look out on the world and you see sin and evil and destruction and you're like, why is this? It all started in Genesis. It started with sin against God and it's continued ever since. And so this is effects of the fall part two. There will be five main points today, five main sections We'll look at first anger in the heart, anger in the heart. Second, God's justice. God is a just God. Third, vengeance is the Lord's. Oftentimes we want to take vengeance into our own hands, but we have to remember it is the Lord's. Fourth, calling on the name of the Lord, calling on the name of the Lord. And then fifth, death and hope in the lineage of Seth, death and hope in the lineage of Seth. So we saw how humanity's rebellion against God and his commands brings about broken relationships. We broke our relationships with God. We could no longer be in his presence. He is holy. He cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. Broken relationships between men and women, husbands and wives, broken relationships between men and their work and women in their childbirth, pain, toil. It is all because of sin and rebellion. But in the midst of all this heartache, in the midst of this evil, we see a glimmer of hope. God has promised an offspring from Eve that an offspring from Eve would come and rescue humanity. That the one, a person would come and save us from our sin, save us from death. And each week we sing how that person is Jesus. Jesus is the promised offspring of Eve that will come to defeat sin, Satan, and evil and death. And like last week, 
We saw how Cain, Cain did not present his offering in faith. We saw Cain present his offering not in faith. He just presented a, po- a portion of his, his work while Abel presented his first fruits, his best, and uh, it was in faith, as we saw in the book of Hebrews. And Cain was furious with his brother. He was furious. Um, he did not repent of his wrongdoing. But even in this, God reached down to Cain and gave him two options. One that leads to life and one option leads to death. We saw this last week in verse 7. God said to Cain, he says, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? You can do what is right. You can repent of your sin. Trust in me. Have faith in me, God offers him. But he gives him the consequence. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Upon first reading of this text, you might think, maybe Cain is the offspring of Eve that will defeat sin. Maybe he will rule over sin. But we know he didn't, because we know Jesus is that offspring. Jesus is the only one who ruled over sin perfectly. Jesus is the only one who is 100% perfect. So we see in verse 8, Jesus' perfection is contrasted with Cain's rebellion. In Genesis 4.8, we see this. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. May seem innocent enough, right? Two brothers going out to the field, doing some work. But while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Remember, Cain had fury. He was angry because God accepted Abel's gift, but God didn't accept his gift. And so he let that fury build up and build up, and he cast his eyes down away from God. He had a lack of faith in God, and these sinful emotions and these sinful attitude grew into action, and he killed his brother. Now, Upon reading this, many of us might be tempted to think of ourselves better than Cain, right? And we justify our sin and excuse our sin because we say, hey, well, at least I didn't kill anyone, right? We, we minimize our rebellion. But we need to recognize that sin and rebellion against God is not just about our actions, but it begins in our heart. It begins in our thoughts, in our intentions, in our desires. Jesus made this clear in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 21. He is arguing against the Pharisees' teaching of the law that focused on just the external. The Pharisees were saying just your actions is what matters. But he says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, Jesus says in verse 22, Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. What you think, what your intentions are, matters. God wants us to follow him with all our heart, all our thoughts, not just our actions. And so for us today, as we read about Cain and look at his sin, we reflect upon ourselves and ask ourselves, ask yourself, are you harboring hatred towards someone? Are you refusing to love and care for someone today? Because after the sin of pride, we see the the sin of pride in Adam and Eve. They thinking that they know what is best. They choose what is best for them. They don't care what God says. They have that pride in their heart. Now we see anger is the next sin described in the Bible. Anger is prevalent throughout the scriptures and prevalent in in our lives. We can see that rearing its head. Cain's anger stemmed from a lack of faith and a lack of trust in God, and he envied his brother. The same is true oftentimes for us today. We want what someone else has, whether that be material objects or social acceptance or just fill in the blank. Someone else has this, and I don't, and that makes me angry. Instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice and celebrating God's grace on others, we celebrate God's gift to other people, we are tempted to turn our eyes down and not thank God for that 
And all we care about is what we don't have and what we are lacking. And thus our anger starts to brew. Don't let your anger brew anymore. There is consequences to our actions, to our thoughts, as we see in the next section of God's justice. Just like in the garden, instead of immediately enacting the death sentence on Cain for this action, God is patient. And he comes actually to speak to Cain. In Genesis 4-9, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Again, every time God asks a question in the Bible, he knows the answer. <laughs> he knows what happened. He is testing Cain's heart here. He is wanting Cain to reflect and repent what he's done. Do you see the grace of God in that? Cain just right out just killed his brother. It would have been perfectly just for God to punish Cain right then and there. But what does God do? He comes and he talks to him. He asks him this. But how does Cain respond to God's grace and patience? Cain adds to his sin. He adds to his sin. He lies about it. He says, I don't know. I don't know. We are tempted to do the same thing when we sin. We are tempted to lie. We are tempted to cover up our sin. And notice, what did Cain do? This was premeditated. He took Cain out to the field, right? He didn't want anyone else to know about it. While no other person may have known what Cain did, God knew. God knows all things. That should hit us, right? He knows every thought. He knows everything we do when no one else does. Hebrews 4.12 and 13, for example, we see the power of God's word and how God knows everything. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We must give an account before God, and he knows everything we've ever done. It is foolishness. It is foolishness to try and hide things from God, to hide our sin from God. The wise man would confess his sin, confess it, and cast himself before God for his mercy and grace. Cain could have done this. Cain could have trusted in God, cried out for mercy. He could have listened to God's words. The same is true for each and every one of us. Will we listen to God's word? Because notice the connection of God knowing all things and the power of his word in Hebrews 12. God's word is powerful. It can expose sin. It can reveal our hearts. It can bring us to have sorrow over our sin. It can bring our sin into the light. So if you're feeling convicted if you're feeling sorrow over your sin, you're feeling that your sin is being called out this morning, it's not because of my eloquence of speech. It's not because of the meter of the songs we just sang. It is because of the power of God's word and the spirit changing your heart to see your sin for what it is. Don't run away from that. Lean into that and say, God, are you trying to show me something? Is your word today trying to show me a dark spot in my heart? The temptation, again, will be to refuse, to justify, to lie to ourselves about our sin. But we must humble ourselves before God and cry out for his mercy. And he is quick to give it. He is merciful and gracious and forgiving. But we have to recognize where we've fallen short. Because if we don't, if we lie, if we lie about our sin, if we say, we don't have any sin, I don't know what you're talking about, God. This ain't, you're not talking about me. There will be justice one day. God says that we look at the justice of God in Genesis 4.10. Then he said, God, God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. 
you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Because of Cain's sin, the consequence is heightened. It is expanded. The justice of God, the punishment that was given to Adam and Eve, his parents, is now extended beyond to Cain. Not only will working the ground be difficult, it will be actually impossible. The ground won't produce anything for him. And then he's further expelled from God's presence and from people. In verse 13, Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. This is an interesting verse here. Sin has taken its hold on humanity in just a few generations. Adam and Eve's kids, so uh, they had other children. So Cain's cousins and brothers and sisters, he's, he thinks that they're going to kill him, right? That's how far sin has resulted, that that's how far that, that sin has gone, that they, he thinks that everyone will be out to kill him. And in verse 15, the Lord actually responds to Cain's cry. He says, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Again, sin separates us from God's presence, his presence of blessing. They were already banished from the Garden of Eden, and Cain's further rebellion separated him even more from God. Even still, God is gracious with Cain, and he ensures his safety that no one will kill him. And we see God's mercy on Cain as well, as he, in the midst of God's justice and punishment, he allows Cain to live to have a family, to have children. We see in our next section where vengeance is the Lord's. We see in verse 17 that Cain was intimate with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Now, notice this tripped me up when I'm going through this passage. There's similar names in the lineage of Cain and Seth, as we'll get to. So this is not the Enoch that you're thinking of, all right? So we'll get to that Enoch in a little bit later. And so... Cain was married, he had kids, and then in the next five verses, we will see Cain's lineage and how his kids had kids and so on. And I want to point out just two things real quick about Cain's lineage here. Number one, this lineage shows that Adam and Eve are historical people. While there are elements of poetry and mystery in the creation accounts of Genesis 1 and 2, they are tied to, the, a, to a historical lineage that extends to the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible. Okay? So that's just the main point to keep in mind because the historical Adam, the historical Eve, that's important for understanding the, the doctrine of our inherited sin nature, why we have all come from Adam and Eve. We have that inherited sin nature that the Apostle Paul will elaborate on in the book of Romans in the New Testament. So just to have that as a foundation. Second, in Cain's lineage, the second thing to point out is there's a guy named Lamech, Lamech, okay? He, he's the first person in the Bible to have two wives. We saw from the beginning that God created men and women. He created marriage, ordained it to be with one man and one woman. The two become one flesh, right? So when Lamech and anyone else in the Old Testament has more than one wife, they are going against God's created order. And every, every time we see that, every, if we track it along through the Old Testament, every time someone has multiple wives... It is not a good example. It tur- their life turns out they're bad. It's a, an example for us not to do that. As we read about Lamech in verse 23, we see this, for example, Lamech said to his wives, he kinda, he's going to sing this song. In Hebrew, it's a poetic, it's poetry. And he's basically saying it's kind of a threat to his wives and to show how strong and violent he is. And so this is the guy, this is Lamech, he's, this is what he says. It says, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech. You can already tell. Like, what is this guy, <laughs> you know? You pay attention to my words. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. Again, this is kind of like a, in Hebrew, a poetry, a type of song. And we see the corrupt nature uh, of Lamech here. 
He seeks to boast to his wives in his acts of violence and seeking vengeance. It seems like he's telling his wives that they need to be afraid of him. He's like, look what I've done. I've, someone uh, harmed me, he wounded me slightly, and I killed him. I killed multiple people, and I'll do it again. So don't mess with me, is basically what he's saying. Instead of serving and caring for his wife, he threatens them. Right? Instead of seeking to understand, give patience and forgiveness, he kills people who have hurt him. He sings about being avenged, not just seven times over, as God sought to protect Cain. He goes exponentially further, saying he will avenge himself by 77 times, a number of completion, a number of almost infinite amount. Right? There is no stopping his violence and vengeance. This is not the type of man we want to imitate in his acts of marriage and in his acts of violence and vengeance. Let us learn from Lamech's negative example. Instead, follow God's way to live. Paul speaks of how we are not to seek vengeance. In Romans 12, 19, he says, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is the Lord's. It is not ours. We are not to take matters into our own hands. God will provide justice either in eternity, on the final judgment, or in this life, he set up the government. He has given the government the authority. He's given the government the sword, right? It talks about it in Romans 13, to enact justice now. It is not for us to take as individuals. That's hard to do in a lot, sometimes, especially when someone hurts us someone hurts our friends, someone hurts our family member, we want to pay it back. We want them to learn, right? We, want to, we have that longing for justice, but we have to recognize that it is God's justice. He has ordained it for him and for the government to do, not us. Will we seek to be independent from God and do what we want to do, or will we trust in him? And actually, instead of seeking vengeance, 70 times 7, Jesus actually commands us to forgive one another this many times. In Matthew 18, 21, Peter approached Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Probably thinking, that's a lot. If I forgive somebody seven times, I'm doing pretty good. Jesus says, I tell you, not as many as seven but 70 times 7. Basically, a number of completion. It's forever, eternity. Keep forgiving them. Peter probably thought, he, again, he was, 7 was a lot. I'd imagine most of us would think forgiving someone 7 times was a lot. But Jesus says, no, 70 times 7. And notice verse 21. Peter is talking about who? His brother or sister who sins against him. I just want us to take a second, look around the room, see the people next to you, look at the person next to you, look at the person behind you, look at the person in front of you. Most in this room are professing believers, and I've met most of you guys. I can see the spiritual fruit of you guys' life. Most of you would be in the church of God, would be a part of the family of God, right? You would be brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I want you guys to know and recognize the person sitting next to you, sitting behind you, will possibly sin against you one day. All right? That's hard to hear. But we need to be expectant of that because Jesus says we need to be ready to forgive. If you go into a church, if you go into a church family and expect no one ever to do anything to you wrong, then you're going to be shocked when it happens. Right? Because when Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sinned against me? As many seven times. Jesus didn't say, Oh, Peter, you have little faith. Don't you know that your brother or sister won't sin against you? He didn't say that. He didn't say, they will love you perfectly. They will agree with you on every point of everything you ever said. They don't, he doesn't say that, right? He says, he says, no, I tell you as many as 70, 70 times seven. That's how many times you need to forgive your brother and sister. In other words, you're going to have a lot of opportunity to forgive people, especially people in the church. So what do we've learned today from Lamech? Number one, don't have multiple spouses. Number two, don't threaten your spouse with violence. 
Don't seek revenge. Instead, be faithful to one spouse. Sacrificially love and care for your spouse. And then care for your enemy as well. Forgive your brother and sister who hurt and sinned against you. We must remember that this is the way God created us to live. How God tells us to live. This is what he wants us to do. We must trust that he knows best. And second, these ethical issues, this story of Lamech, all points to Jesus. Take marriage, for example. Paul says in Ephesians 5.32 that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, right? Jesus is faithful to the church. He is faithful to those who trust in him. He will not leave them or forsake them. And that also means that he doesn't have two churches. He doesn't have two families, one for Jews and one for Gentiles, one for this people, one for that people. No, there's one church, right? Just like marriage, there's one man, one woman. But take vengeance, for example. Vengeance is the Lord's. God's will prov- God will provide the justice. And what does Jesus do? He takes God's justice for us. He t- satisfies God's wrath for us. As Isaiah 53, 6 makes clear, it says, we have all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That's Jesus. He took our punishment. He took the justice of God so we don't have to. So when we don't seek vengeance, when we forgive, we point people to Jesus. That points people to how Jesus is the one who took our justice, who took the punishment that we deserved. As we move into our fourth point here, calling on the name of the Lord. Cain was obviously not the offspring that would defeat sin. Cain's lineage is not looking too good so far. But God didn't give up on humanity. His grace and his mercy continues to shine forth in the midst of darkness. We see in verse 25 of Genesis 4, Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another offspring in place of Abel since Cain killed him. So maybe Seth will be the offspring that would bring about God's rescue plan. It says God is the one who provided Seth. Things seem to be looking up. Verse 26, a son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Instead of giving offerings that lacked faith like Cain, instead of resorting to violence and vengeance like Lamech, Seth's lineage is marked by worshiping God, calling on the name of the Lord. And part of what it means to call on the name of the Lord is to worship God and to, by proclaiming truths about God. To call on the name of the Lord is to proclaim who God is, to proclaim what he's done, what he's like. That's what we do together when we gather on Sundays and Wednesdays and when we gather in each other's homes and we pray together and we worship together. We sing. We sing about who God is, who he's like, what he's like, his attributes, how he's our creator, how he is perfect and holy. We call on the name of the Lord through our prayers. We show that we are dependent on him, that he can answer our prayers. We call on the name of the Lord through scripture reading, through learning about who God is in his word. The way we live day to day, every the rest of the week, the way we live is a way we call on the name of the Lord because we proclaim with our lives what we think about God. We proclaim with our lives and how we live what God is like. Just like when we refrain from showing vengeance and forgive, we show that God is forgiving. We want everyone to call on the name of the Lord. We want everyone to know who God is to know their Savior, to know their King. That's why we must share the good news of Jesus with our friends and family, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, so that they too can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. As Romans 10.9 picks up this this idea, Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In verse 13 For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is the name we call on. Jesus is the Lord. We we must not only call on his name with our words, but it says we must believe that in our hearts. 
Because calling on the name of Jesus represents your faith in him. Do you trust in Jesus today? Is he your God? Is he your Savior? Is he your King? Because calling on Jesus is not some magical incantation, right? It's not some words you say, then you're granted access into heaven. It's not some, a magic prayer. No, it's not at all. Calling on the name of the Lord, calling on the name of Jesus, again, is to believe in your heart who Jesus is. Is Jesus your God? Is he your Savior? Is he your King? Do you believe that he died for your sins? That he was raised from the dead. That's calling on the name of the Lord. This Jesus was the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15. So neither Seth nor his son Enosh were the Savior, but Jesus would be from Seth's lineage. And then we turn to our last section here in death and hope in the lineage of Seth. In Genesis 5.1. It says, this is a document containing the family records of Adam on the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth, and he fathered other sons and daughters. Here again, we see Adam being presented as a historical person, whose lineage will be traced all the way through the birth of Christ in the New Testament. Now, it's important to remember when studying genealogies in the Bible that they don't include every person in every generation. They hit the high points. Like it says, he fathered other sons and daughters that we don't know their names of, right? He gives us only Seth's lineage here. And we see in verse 5, the theme of really most of the Old Testament Adam's life lasted 930 years, then he died. Death will be here on out. Death is here to stay, right? Death, even though Adam sinned and he died spiritually, God was patient and he didn't enact justice physically, Adam got to live 930 years before he died. Now you might be thinking, well, that's a long time. But in comparison to eternity, what is that? That's nothing, right? 900 years versus eternity is like, that, right? So he missed out on living with God for eternity, and he died at 930 years. Because of Adam's sin, every one of his descendants is also born with a sin nature and is spiritually dead and also will one day physically die as well. The assuredness of death is the main points of this genealogy in chapter 5. I'll just point out a few people. Seth Lasted 920, 912 years, then he died. Verse 11, Enosh died. Verse 14, Kenan died. You get the picture. Mahalel, he died. Jared died. There's death, right? Sin leads to death. But then always with God, there was a glimmer of hope. Even in the midst of all the sin and death, we read about a man named Enoch who didn't die. Verse 22 of Genesis 5. It says, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not there because God took him. Now, it should be said, we know that Enoch wasn't perfect. <laughs> he didn't have a perfect life, but his life could be described as walking with God. He walked with God in the sense it's a metaphor to describe how he lived holy. He lived after God's uh, law. He followed God, what God wanted him to do. He had faith in God. He trusted in God. He didn't hide in shame from God. He didn't hide his sin, but he trusted in God. He walked on the path of righteousness with God. Enoch was like Abel. He had faith in God, as Hebrews 11:5 says. By faith, Enoch was taken away. And so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now you might be thinking, well, what did he do? What kind of things did he do to please God? Verse 6, and he already said in verse 5, he had faith, but verse 6 makes it clear. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can do as many good things as you could dream of. You could donate all your money, sell your house, sell everything, but if you don't have faith... In God, you're not pleasing him. 
since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You must have faith and trust in God to please him. There is hope for those who have faith. That's what Enoch shows us. Enoch gives us a glimmer of hope. It's possible to walk with God, have hope in him and trust in him, and you can be brought into eternal life. Enoch, the story of Enoch shows us that there's more to this life than we see. There is an afterlife. There is a heaven. There is a place with God that can be reached. It's not by our good works. It's not by doing enough good things, but it's by trusting in Jesus. It's by trusting in God. Because him being taken up looks to, looks forward to our resurrection, where we will one day be resurrected and be with God. The question for us is, will we have faith and will we walk with God in this life until he takes us home? Or will we trust in ourselves? Will we walk our own way and do what we want until the day of the Lord, the day of judgment and condemnation? As we will see the justice of God again next week being poured out on the rebellious humanity in the story of Noah. So as we come here to the end, as you consider God's word today in Genesis 4 and 5, what is God speaking to you through his word? How should you respond to God today? Is there something to believe that you haven't been believing? Is there something about God that you learned about that you focused in on today that you can believe about God? Is there something for you to do that you have, haven't been doing? Is there something you need to stop doing that you've been doing. So during this time of response, I want you to cry out to God in repentance. Praise God for his grace and mercy through Jesus. And if you'd like to use this time as a time of prayer, do that as well. And I'll be down at the front. If you'd like to pray with me about anything, I'd love to talk with you. And I'll be available after the service as well. So let's pray together. God, we do thank you for your word. And we feel it piercing our hearts to the, to the deepest depths. And it is sometimes uncomfortable to see our sin for what it is, to look in the mirror and to see our fallenness. But only after that, we, because of that, we can come to you. We thank you for loving us in spite of all that. You see our sin, you see who we are, but yet you died for us. God, we thank you so much for loving us in that way, God, help us to follow hard after you. Help us to love you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. God, we need you to do this in us. It is by your mercy, it is by your grace that you open our eyes. God, we praise you for everything you've given us. Help us to walk with you. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for our invitation?